Welcome to Pastor's Bible Study, The Growth of God, episode number one. I am Reverend Trudy Robinson, the lead pastor of the First United Methodist Church of San Diego and your host. Today, we're looking at God's relationship with humanity as expressed by the biblical covenants, the first being the covenant with Noah after the flood. We consider God's response to the flood, the covenant that was made as a result, and those things lead us to ask, did God just change God's mind? Yep. So we're also having an introduction to process theology. Good stuff. I'm glad you're listening. Welcome to this brand new class. Uh, after the first of the year, we're, we're looking at what I've called the growth of God. And uh, throughout these next several weeks, I think it's about five we're looking specifically at the covenants in the Bible. Um, we know that word. I'll say more about it in a moment. But we know that we're looking at the covenants in the Bible and why those covenants came to be and how those covenantal changes uh, show us that God changes. And we're talking about that. We're using this as a springboard to look at covenant, to look at the stories uh, and the context around those covenants, and also to look at a theology known as process theology. Uh, I don't know if that's a familiar term to you all, uh, but you'll you'll learn a little bit of it uh, in these next five weeks. Um, and it's, it's kind of typically heady stuff, and I will be the first one to admit that I don't know all about it, but I like what I do know, and I hope that what I do know will be enough to at least give you a, an understanding of what it is and how process theology differs from traditional Christian theology. So, uh, and just to kind of put process theology alongside traditional Christian theology to also remind us that we talked about liberation theology in one of the Bible studies uh, sometime last year, I'm thinking. Um, and so, so the idea that there are theologies that come through and uh, come out of uh, different situations is not unusual, and process theology is along those lines. It comes out of a real specific need and understanding. So, so that, that shouldn't frighten you, um, but rather uh, let us know that all of our conversations around God, all of our understandings about who God is, are continually changing. And part of what we're discovering in these classes, this series, is that God is changing too. God is changing too. That seems weird to actually say out loud, doesn't it? Yeah, I think we have a few hymns that talk about uh, God being the one who is, was, and always will be. And there's a constancy about God, an everlasting, eternal God. And, and to think that God changes makes us a little nervous. Let's see if you still feel that way by the time we're done. So, let's start first with uh, just an exploration of what it really means to... Uh, have a covenant. The, the straightforward definition of covenant is an agreement, uh, usually a formal in agreement between two or more persons. Uh, it's an agreement to do or not do something that is really pretty specific. Uh, the agreement in this context is between God and the ancient Israelites, uh, especially as we begin the first several of these classes. Um, the very first covenant is the one we're going to look at today. It's the covenant of Noah. And we know Noah and the ark and the flood and all of that stuff. This covenant, we'll hear more about it, it is actually between God and all living creatures. So it's God and lots of entities involved in this covenant, not just two or three people. Um, some of the covenants uh, that we'll talk about in the weeks to come, uh, Noah's covenant, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with Jeremiah, 
and the covenant with Jesus. So the, that's where we're headed. There's a lot of conversation uh, around uh, scholars that uh, really argue, uh, you know, scholars will find just about anything to argue with, but they argue about just how many covenants are there. There could be three, there could be 120. I mean, there's a lot of conversation. We're choosing just those five to look at in these, uh, in these next few weeks. So there are two major types of covenants that we see in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the, the first one is the obligatory type. And this obligatory covenant deals with the relationship between two parties of equal standings. And they obligate one to each other around what they say they're going to do in the covenant. There's also the promissory kind of covenant, a promissory covenant. And that is between, um, between someone who has a higher standing and somebody with a lower standing in terms of, of um, power is probably the best way to say that. Often it was used in the ancient world between uh, the suzerain, uh, a sovereign state that holds political control, and the people or the states or the territory over which they hold that control. So we, we understand that kind of uh, dynamic. The covenants, either type, obligatory or promissory, were actually very similar to uh, a legal document in antiquity. It was known as the royal grant a type of document. And in this document of the covenant, it includes historical information, uh, border delineations, uh, let's see, stipulations, witnesses, blesses, blessings, curses. So there's a lot packed into the covenant that kind of place it in a time uh, and expectation uh, between the parties. Covenants at its very basic, it's about relationship, right? It's about vows that we make to one another. It's about promises and commitments. Um, one of the scholars that I've read, uh, Gerard, uh, Gerhard von Rad, has said, quote, a covenant clarifies an opaque legal situation in that it puts the relationship of the partners on a new legal basis. So it's making things clear legally, right? Uh, and so in, in the fact that it's um, a legal basis, it, it means it, it, it elevates the relationship just a little bit. It, it puts a little bit more value or more at stake in the relationship, if you will. Uh, it's, it's moving from dating to marriage, right? That's really what we're talking about. You kicked it up to the next level. So as we look at this very first covenant, the covenant of Noah, we know that in the scriptures up to this point, God created humankind and all of creation. God had a falling out with Adam and Eve. They were kicked out of Eden. Uh, Cain and Abel uh, come as progeny of uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, they actually didn't behave much better than Adam and Eve. Um, they had some uh, uh, murder, right? Uh, Cain killed Abel. Uh, and so, you know, all of those things considered, things really weren't going very well in terms of how God might have hoped it would in creation. Things weren't going very well. And so God uncreates the world with a flood. So looking at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was so sorry that he made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And as an example of um, what was going on, or uh, the, as the story of the flood kind of begins, we hear these four verses that are really kind of interesting, and I knew they might come up if they have, uh, so I wanted to just address them right off the start to the best of my ability. Uh, it, it begins in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. It says, When people began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair, 
and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. Their days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old, warriors of renown. Is that new to you, those verses? No, you know them. Okay, so that's, I remember the first time I learned about these uh, Nephilim and I'm thinking, what? What, what's going on here, right? Because we don't really preach on this. In fact, these verses are not in the lectionary. They do not come up to be preached about. Sons of God, um, that uh, considered to be renegade angels. And this is very similar to ancient mythology. So it's very contextual. That was the understanding of the day. Of course, Yahweh would have sons just like all the other deity in antiquity. Uh, and these sons of gods, these renegade angels, did not honor the border between heaven and earth. We can see that in the relationships of having of the daughters, right, of, of having them uh, bear children for them. And the Nephilim um, is an interesting concept, and there's a lot of ambiguity about what it actually means. Nobody really knows for sure. Some interpret the word to mean giants, and some interpret the word to mean either the fallen ones or the ones falling upon their enemies. So you, again, you get the warrior kind of idea. And, and this kind of mythology, the sons of God, the warrior idea, that was very prevalent in antiquity as an understanding of God. I'll say more about that in a moment. Um, we, we see reference to uh, Nephilim again in Numbers. Uh, it says, uh, this is uh, when um, the 12 spies are going to spy on Canaan to look to see the, who their enemy is as they try to conquer the promised land. They say, there, there we saw Nephilim, the sons of Anak, uh, who come of the Nephilim and were in our own sight as grasshoppers and so we were in their sight. So they were very big giants. Uh, that's who they are. That's about all there is to the story, other than the idea that God limits um, humanity's time on earth because in that mating, immortality was uh, possible, right? And the limitation on those years, 120 years, is really symbolic of the heroic era, all very contextual. So that's an aside. I'm going to put that out of the way. We don't have to think about the giants in the Noah's Ark anymore, maybe. <laughs> but we do move on uh, to the rest of the story. Uh, so God has seen um, all the violence. In Genesis 6:11, it reads, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was full, filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. This is really painting God. God's heart hurts. He is grieving over the resistance of the human heart to follow God in God's ways. And uh, the ways that humanity is following is very destructive. And God now is deciding to be destructive in return. In his uh, promise to uh, destroy all of the earth, it is really a, a, a spiraling, a continual continuation of the spiraling of all creation into violence and into chaos, the disordered void from which it was formed, right? Um, God created out of chaos. Humanity makes its own sense of chaos. God comes in and says, you know what? We're going back to chaos. You're already headed there. Might as well just destroy it all. We'll go back to chaos. Remember Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says, The earth was form a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. That's that primordial chaos. And God comes to order it all. 
So this, this act of God in destroying the people um, really is an uncreation of the world. And yet God preserves a, a remnant of that original creation, Noah and the animals two by two. And after the destruction of the flood, God reestablishes the cosmos under a new order. And that new order then is part of the first covenant God makes with all living creatures. So, in this formalization of the relationship, in Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 through 17, God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animals on the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. I established my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Did you hear how many times God said never? <laughs> he means it, right? She means it, maybe. Uh, God will never, 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 three times in three different locations as they talk about that new covenant. So there's uh, some interesting information around the bow that is placed in the sky. We know it as the rainbow. But in Psalm chapter 7, verse 12, it gives us a different kind of image. It reads, this psalm reads, If one does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and strung his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. It's a different kind of bow, right? It's a bow and arrow in this psalm. There's a, that's actually a very common image in the ancient Near East. Um, a bow as part of God's arsenal for dealing with control of the world. So Near Eastern civilizations and their creation stories depicted creation coming out of a cosmic battle between the forces of chaos and a warrior god, usually a young warrior god. And in that conflict, um, the gods win and creation is developed and, and born out of that violence, right? Um, it is a battle that encompassed all of the celestial beings, so all of the sons of God. That's part of, part of what we see in that ancient mythology around this time. And in our story, God says, I have set my bow in the clouds. And if it's a warrior's bow, like was prevalent imagery in that time, uh, it is a bow that is unstrung and pointing away from creation. It's a bow that God has hung up and decided I'm not going to use again, right? It's there, it's in the skies, I'm not going to be there, I'm not going to take it down, I'm not going to use it. So in the, in the ancient mythology, it was the bow that really uh, helped the divine warrior to um, be victorious over the primordial chaos, okay? It's kind of interesting, God is the one that created the chaos now, that sent it back to the primordial chaos, but God's going to leave it there. I think there's a, a reference to God's um, 
power, right, and authority over creation in that kind of sim, uh, imagery. Um, yeah, Bill has a question, so. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a good point, and I probably sque uh, skimmed over that little detail too quickly. Uh, Bill was wondering why now? Why make a covenant now with the people? What makes this the time to do that? So we we looked at um, creation from its beginnings to at least what the Bible tells us, the generations that have come on the earth, and and the violence that is just kind of there with everybody from Adam and Eve's first disobedience and then it, it continues there. And God decides to uh, set aside a remnant and then flood the earth and cause destruction so that it feels like the primordial chaos. That's key, I think. If God watched remember what God created and called very good, be destroyed. What does that do to you, right? I mean, it's, it's a, I, this is a really poor illustration, but I'm talking on the spot here. It's the idea that, uh, right, um, in a moment of anger, you pick up your grandmother's favorite vase and you throw it against the wall, right? <laughs> Somebody here said, no, we don't do that. You're right, you're right, we don't do that. But, but you can understand something of great value to God. God called us good, very good, called all of creation good and very good. And it is our human uh, tendency for violence that caused the destruction of the flood, at least according to the scripture, right? And so it, God destroys all that he loved. And so... I can only imagine that God realized what he had done, what she had done, and decided it is not worth it. That moment of retaliation is not worth it. I will never do that again. I will never pick up my grandmother's vase, <laughs> right? So Bill asked if that doesn't set the tone for uh, God to give us some covenant uh, responsibilities as well. That's coming. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's coming. So uh, God sets the, the bow up into the sky as a reminder uh, for God to never be tempted to, to contribute to the chaos in any way. God will not let chaos reign. But as all the parts of this story tell us, God could, but God says no, not by God's actions. And this actually is God restraining God's self, right? God could, but God doesn't. God is restraining God's self to diffuse the brutal retaliation uh, to, to restrain himself so that the violent creation will not get worse because of God's action. This covenant limits God. God's power is self-limited. God says, I'm not going to use that piece of, the, of, of what I could do. God imposes boundaries on himself. Is that a weird thing? right? What a lesson for all of us, right? We can, but it doesn't mean we should, right? There you go. All right, so um, that's the story. The story, scholars say, was written right after the exile. Uh, most, so much of the scriptures that we have in its current form uh, were actually written down in exile. You can you can understand how important that would be as as the people were away from their homeland, away from the temple. Um, their whole life was in uh, upheaval. 
uh, and they needed to make sure that their traditions of their faith were continued, so they began to write things down. Uh, so this was one of those stories that was written down while they were in exile. And scholars think it was a part of the priestly writings. You might have remember some of those distinctions we made in earlier Bible studies. The priestly writings liked to use tangible things as signs of the relationship of the covenant. Um, circumcision. That's a bodily mark identifying men who are part of Abraham's covenant, right? The observance of the Sabbath, that is a cultural indicator of observant Israelites responding to Moses' covenant with God, right? And now the rainbow in the sky is the covenant God has made with all creation. So it's a priestly version of the story. Now consider the importance of this story, especially for people who are in exile. They are far away from home, but anytime it rains, they can look at the sky and see a rainbow and know that God's covenant is still with them, right? And all people. God's relationship is still there, despite the fact that everything has changed. This covenant is also multi-generational. Did you notice that? It's not just for Noah and his family, but all of those who are yet to be born, the future generations. So the nature of God in antiquity, you might already have glimpsed this as we talked about some of the mythology that is around. Uh, the nature of God uh, in the ancient world was that um, God was uh, omnipotent and cared about justice. Those are the primary awareness we see in a lot of the mythology and, and even in our scriptures. Uh, God created all things and God stands to judge over all things. And by extension, God is also entitled to destroy all things when they prove disappointing. Anybody want that power? No, we aren't going to admit it, right? We aren't going to admit it. God has that power. That's that omnipotence, that ult ultimate powerful um, nature of God. That's also God's justice, right? If something's not going well and there is injustice, then doggone it, let's fix it. And uh, God surrenders that right to destroy in this covenant. And in doing so, God binds God's self to humanity and to all the world. It is that elevation of that relationship to a, a higher level in this covenant. It's a, it's a legal document, right? And God is bound to humanity and to all living things. And it's important to notice just as we are. God binds God's self to us. So, let's see. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, God is willing to enter into a relationship that puts limits on God's prerogatives. And God's compassion and this covenant will forever bind God to humanity. And God then is now subject to all the hope and the disappointment, the joy and the grief that comes with all kinds of relationships. Right? God just can't fix it even though God could. And so he's going to have to experience all that along with us. Some say that this covenant requires nothing of creation, that the covenant really is just that one that binds God. It's unilateral. God alone is bound by the limitation. Humanity is not. There are requirements for humanity, but not those requirements came earlier than this part of our scripture, and scholars think it's not actually part of the covenant. It's a little bit of a gray area in my mind, but uh, nonetheless, um, here's what is expected of, hu of humans uh, after the flood. God blessed Noah. This is in Genesis 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. 
And whoever sheds the blood of a human by a human shall that person's blood be shed, for in his own image God made humankind. So God essentially reiterates what was expected of humanity at the beginning, right? Be fruitful and multiply. We hear that at, the, at creation. We hear, um, this is an interesting one. In, in the creation story, God gives the plants to humanity to, to eat. But now, uh, one of the, the things that God was disappointed about in the uh, moments before the flood was that flesh was set upon flesh. We were eating the animals, as scholars understand that part of the passage. But here, after the flood, God says, okay, you can have the animals, right? I give you everything to eat, right? Um, only the requirement not to, to, to drink the blood, to drain the blood still. And then, of course, uh, no, uh, no one should shed the blood of a human as well. It's not much that changes on humanity's part in this part of the covenant. Um, so, one scholar put it this way, if, oh, I'm sorry, let me, let me go back. Um, so, not much has changed on humanity's part. Humanity actually is still very violent. And uh, it's still the law of tooth and claw, right? And the strong overpower the weak in these times after uh, the, the flood. Um, the, the reasoning for the flood, uh, God gives in Genesis 8.21, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from its youth. So that remains after the flood. And in Genesis um, 9.5, it says this, um, for your own lifeblood, I will surely require a reckoning, God says. From every animal, I will require it. And from human beings, each one for the blood of another, I will require a reckoning for human life. That, um, I think, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the point I want to make here is that God knows that's going to happen. And so God just says, you're going to have some consequences. So again, there's not much that changes in humanity in this, co in this covenant. There's not much that's required. It's God who is going to meet us where we are and promise to not bring chaos upon us. I find that really interesting. God discovers retribution, has not solved the situation, and God will have to change. This covenant is the divine response to a theological paradox, one scholar has said, William Lloyd Allen. He says, quote, God's unstoppable purpose in creation towards a peaceful cosmos collided with God's immovable compassion for destructive, recalcitrant humanity. Right? God created everything so it would be wonderful and good and beautiful, Eden-like, right? And then it comes colliding with humanity's own uh, tendency to be destructive and disobedient. So, God changed, right? God put limits on God's self and changed in response to humanity without asking humanity to do much changing at all on the other side of this coin. That's a really good point that leads us towards what's known as process theology. So this might feel like a complete uh, left turn, uh, some of the content of this next little bit, but I hope you'll uh, follow me as best we can. So uh, process theology came along uh, in the recognition that traditional theism or um, understanding of God just wasn't working very well anymore, especially when you consider the discoveries made by modern physics. I don't know modern physics, so don't ask me what those are. <laughs> but you'll catch a glimpse of some of the changes in our thinking, and, and especially scientifically, that contribute to this development of this new kind of theology. Um, so process theologians uh, began to think that a new concept of God is needed 
along with a different view of the world as we experience it. Process theology is a school of thought that is influenced by the metaphysical process philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead. Anybody know that name? Yay! That's amazing. I see some hands on the Zoom screen, too. That's awesome. That's awesome. So if you guys know anything more than I do, please. Um, uh, there you go. Um, yeah, so uh, he is the one that really began to shift the thinking, and it was his writings, very complicated writings, that influenced people like uh, Charles Hartshorn, uh, and later John Cobb, David Ray Griffin. Those are theology professors at Claremont School of Theology, or they were. Um, and uh, then Thomas J. Ord uh, began to integrate process theology with Wesleyan theologies. Um, so I just wanted to kind of show you that lineage uh, and to, to I give you the idea that it comes from a very scientific understanding, which is different from the traditional kind of theologies, because that was pre-scientific, right? Uh, discovery, uh, and and it traces its back to some real scientific understandings, and it has been embraced by some pretty uh, influential people, not just in Christian uh, circles, but in Methodist circles as well. So it's not just some fly on the wall that nobody knows about, I guess is the point of that. So the concepts of process theology include, number one, God is not omnipotent. God is not all-powerful. We can kind of see this in the covenant with Noah, that self-restriction. Um, God is not all-powerful, especially in the sense of being coercive. The classical doctrine of omnipotence has been understood as uh, God is able to, to be coercive. Um, and, and we pray for God to, to do something about our enemies, right? We see that in scripture. Um, and, and that's been the traditional understanding. Process theologians claim something a little bit more inherently restrictive. And inherently restrictive means that even in the nature and character of God, God is not all-powerful. Does that raise any eyebrows? Keep listening. Uh, God, however, has the power of persuasion. Think about the Holy Spirit's guidance, right? So that's the first point of process theology. The second point is reality is not static. It is not just here and it is what it is. Reality instead consists of serially ordered events that are experiential in nature. That sounds like it came right out of a textbook. And it probably did. <laughs> right? But reality is, is one moment after another, one happening, one event, one thought, one action after another, after another. And we and all of creation experience it as reality is moving. Does that make sense? That sounds about right. Number three. The universe is characterized by process and change carried out by the agents of free will. So what happens in the universe is continual change as humanity and other agents of free will make decisions, right? What happens in one spot affects everything else, right? God cannot force anything to happen, but rather only influence the exercise of this universal free will by offering possibilities. So God's not all-powerful because reality changes with every act and decision that is made by agents who have free will. 
and with so many different agents of free will, how can God control all of it? That's part of the, the idea, I think, around process theology, right? Instead, in each given moment, God can persuade the agents of free will to do what's right and what's good for all. Let's see, where am I? Number four. God contains the universe, but is not identical with it. So in God's self is all that exists. That's what's known as panentheism, which is different from pantheism. Pantheism would say that God is the universe. God is all that exists. But there's something extra in panentheism. God just contains all that exists. Uh, six? <laughs> Five. Five. Uh, because God contains a changing universe, God is changeable. That is to say, God is affected by the actions that take place in the universe over the course of time. That is a new... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially when God, so Bill is asking, um, is, is God changing or is our perception of God changing? And um, it, it's a really good question to ask because it would be suspect if God is changing into the God I want God to be, right? Right. Um, so, so God is changing. And even in, even in the story of the, the covenant with Noah, we see God change. God change God's mind. God be, begins to um, be sorry, essentially. Um, so we, we see that. And it's absolutely true that we have to be careful, because even as we read through scriptures, we know that it is humanity's perception of God, right? Um, but this theology would suggest is a little bit different than um, traditional theology. Traditional theology marries the eternal nature of God to the uh, all-powerful God, right? And when you put those together in process theology, um, God is not all-powerful, and the idea that God changes in response to what's happening in the world, that is a different combination that's unusual. So that's different, um, and, and uh, I think we still have to be careful of, of whether or not the God is changing into our perception of God, uh, but it's a, it's a dynamic that's a little bit more nuanced than that simple statement, um, especially in that pairing. Um, so God is changeable over the course of time. However... Point one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, six. Point six, sorry, <laughs> I should have numbered them instead of bulleted them. Um, <laughs> the abstract elements of God are unchanging and eternal. So the abstract elements such as goodness, wisdom, benevolence, those kinds of things. Those are unchanging according to process theology. Okay, I got to get through another page. Uh, God in process theology, uh, the, their, process theology came about because there's a lot of things with traditional theology that are um, problematic for our understanding of the world today. Um, so, for instance, God's determination of the future or knowledge of the future really conflicts with human freedom, right? If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and knows exactly where we're going, then how much agency do we really have, right? It's the whole free will, predetermination kind of argument between Wesley and Calvin. Um, but So that's, that's one kind of problem. There's the problem of evil. Um, in, in, infinite goodness is incompatible with evil. 
So if God is the all-powerful God, uh, what do we do with evil in the world? Um, there's the problem with uh, a spiritual being being the cause of anything material, so process theologians would say. If God is purely spirit, how can that spirit create anything out of matter? There's the problem with science versus religion, of course, the theory of evolution versus Genesis, that's prevalent in traditional theology. There's the problem of creation uh, of the entire universe out of nothingness. Uh, that's incoherent because it is thought to be metaphysically impossible to get something from nothing. And the beginning of time is a self-contradictory notion. Uh, also, God's consciousness cannot change if it is of all infinity at once. But consciousness must change. So why would a deity want its creations to, to do anything if doing so does not bring about any change? Even a change in the eternal deity, right? Why would God need us to worship God if there's no change that happens to God? If God is not pleased? Or God is not um, persuaded. That's a couple of lessons in the future for us. So God is seen less as an entity and more as a process. The reality of the deity has not been fixed, but it's still being developed. So, reality in process theology. So, we talked a little bit about the tenets of process theology, a little bit about what it tries to fix in the problems of traditional theology. Here's what reality looks like um, in process theology, a reality that also affects our understanding of God, okay? So, um, traditional theology has a dualism to it, right? Spirit is good, material is bad. There's good in the world, there's evil in the world, there's a dualistic way of looking at the world, and that's challenged in process theology. With process metaphysics, there's a different view of what is real. There's no substances or static independent realities, right? Substances, that's that the, uh, philosophical word, if you remember your philosophy class a oh, long time ago, right? Um, there, there's uh, the idea that there are static, independent realities. Process theology says, nope, that's not it. Instead, there are actual entities, which is the dynamic collection of events. Bonnie is who she is because of everything that has happened in her life. That is your reality. And as there's nothing, nothing that is um, um, unaffected that is real in you outside of those experiences. And as you have more and more experiences, you will continue to change. That's part of the idea they're getting at, right? Um, everything is in causal motion. One thing causes the next, which causes the next, right? And so that allows for creativity. Who knows what we can create in the next moment? In, in addition to the actual entities, that dynamic collection of events, which is what is real, there are also eternal objects in process theology. The eternal objects are patterns of events which permeate all of reality. Some philosophers call this universals, right? So, so there are patterns that are part of what's real as well. Uh, within the process view, nature itself is comprised of creative experiential events. And God is thought of as the everlasting eternal entity. And God is a dynamic collection of events, a pattern of which permeates all reality. Yeah. Bill has a question. Where the heck? Oh, the miracles are what's possible in each moment. Right? Yeah. The, uh huh. Yeah. 
you go. So I, I probably answered that before telling you all on Zoom what we were talking about. Sorry about that. Bill was asking, well, he doesn't see any sense of the miraculous in process theology, which is where I said, oh, the miracle lies in what, what could be at each given moment. Um, and, and yet you still don't have a sense of the miracle in, in what can happen. Yeah, yeah. That's probably a whole other class, just in terms of how do we look at miracles and all of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Thank you, Bill, for your thought. Okay, it's just a couple more things. Um, the traditional concept of God's omniscience, God's all-knowing, in the process view, God does not know the future at all. Since all events exercise some sort of self-determination, some choice with those involved, the future is not knowable in principle. You just, you can't know. However, something, once something is, once that moment happens, then God knows that moment. And then God is not, excuse me, uh, God can know it once it happens. So that's where the all-knowing peace of God plays in. God doesn't know the future, but knows each and every moment. God, uh, let's see, what's important here? So um, God is both exists within and beyond the physical universe, which itself is a miracle, maybe, I don't know. Um, partly, God exists partly in creation, partly beyond or outside creation, according to process thought. There's a relationship. Uh, let's see, God permeates all nooks and crannies of the universe and therefore is all present. And God, perm uh, excuse me, um, in, in that uh, presence, there's a relationship between the creator and creation. And that relationship is marked by one of cooperation in the best ideal sense of a relationship. God attempts to entice the creations, human beings, all of creation really, to work with the deity, but God cannot be forced, uh, God cannot force us to do so. We won't be forced to do so. We hear that in the Noah story, right? God can influence the conscious creations, but does not, does not directly act upon them and does not force cooperation or compliance. God acts on the creations through the attraction of its values. That was a whole bunch of stuff. And it probably got your head spinning for a little while. But I hope you got a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of it down. So I'm going to take a minute. Um, we have a little bit of time. We're going to have to do this differently if we're going to have small group conversations. So I'll remember that for next time. But um, I just wanted to take a look at, actually, for those of you who are on the Zoom call, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and unmute yourself. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to say, we'll start with the Zoom folks and then we'll turn it back to the in-person folks. What, what's on your mind? What needs clarification besides everything? <laughs> yeah, Limby, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Limby. Um, I'm going to do my best in these next uh, five weeks to give you what I know. This was kind of an overview, a foundation. Um, I am quite sure that all I know is not enough. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll have to figure out a way to get uh, somebody who knows what they're talking about uh, more deeply than I do and to, to teach that. But we'll see where we are at the end of this class. Yeah. Um, Anybody else have something to say? Go ahead and unmute yourself and uh, just let it out. Yeah. Um, it seems to make an entire sense. Um, it's kind of where I'm at. Um, I have my hands shake, so my writing is so bad that when I'm writing quickly, I can't read my own writing. <laughs> 
<laughs> I understand completely, Tom. Um, thank you. There you go, right? Yeah, thank you, Tom. There, you know, it, it sounds, process theology sounds really foreign to begin with, but when you began to really consider some of the principles of the metaphysics of it, and, and that sounds more threatening than it is, more intimidating than it should be. But when you think about how we actually approach life and understand our world around us, it's not too out there, right? It's, we know that we have agency. We know that one moment affects the next. We know that a butterfly's wing in Japan affects the climate somewhere else, right? We know that kind of uh, connection that uh, reality is constantly changing as well. We also know that there are patterns in what, what happens, uh, that we as human beings create the patterns of nature, all of those kinds of things. So, so those elements seem to make sense. How do we then adjust, how do we fit, if that's our reality, how do we fit God, who has traditionally been known as all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, right? How do we understand evil in, in, and the connection between our understanding of God and the world as we experience it. How do we understand why the pandemic happens and how many people die when God could do something? How do we understand some of the dynamics, some of those deep questions of faith that people will ask pastors who have no good answers, by the way, um, right? It, it, when you begin to kind of live with it differently, it makes some sense to me. And I really do love the idea uh, of of every moment there is God persuading us, guiding us towards that which will lead to another decision and another and another that would be in line with what God would have us be, the goodness of all of us for the, for the goodness of all. Right? Yeah, Bill, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can say God will, God will rescue me from this thing or from this suffering. But that is not a prayer that will be part of the process. Uh, Bill said that um, it sounds like we're moving away from a God who rescues, that we would not be praying to God to, to rescue us in any given situation. Um, and, and I think you're, you're right and yet we would pray still. We would pray because we need to be guided to the next moment. And the, that's right. That's right. That's right. God is with us in our suffering, but not rescuing us in our suffering. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, so yeah, God is rescuing us because God is giving us the opportunity of making decisions that affects everything around us. Um, so so that in that sense, that is rescuing, and that aligns perfectly with free will. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. somebody's loved one gets murdered or, or something similar to that and they come out and said well it's God's plan mm. and we'll live with it that kind of you know yeah that wouldn't happen in process theology oh that rubs me wrong yep yep it it, it is not God's will that anybody be murdered right that is free will happening um, that they die from a disease or that, that there's a flood or whatever. The, right, right, yeah. My, my uh, brother-in-law, who's a, a Bible-thumping uh, minister who uh, Eileen and I call him the Levitical minister, 
Yep. You know, he hates gays and, well, you know, they're, <laughs> you know, they're all going to hell. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's God's plan, you know, so yeah. that all this stuff happens. That's right. I love the, the, the free will um, and the, the, the persuading in each and every moment because it gives us second chances, right? It, it gives us all second chances. Yeah. Did I hear somebody else start to say something? Point Loma Nazarene University? Yes, yes. And there was a professor out there that came, and yeah. he was going to come once a month yeah. and uh, take a part in it. So that is a, a part of our church history. That yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Good, good. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Even if you, even if it doesn't quite fit what you're thinking, um, I think it's really important for us to to be aware uh, of kind of just the way theologians are trying to understand the world continually, right? Um, and each era has its own kind of shifts in the way we understand God and our relationship. And uh, it's, it's one of the ways that God uses to grow our understanding of something that ultimately is beyond comprehension and uh, also can get us out of our tendency to think my way is the only way and my understanding is the right one, right? Just this, this movement of, of conversation about just who God is and how we view the world and what our relationship with God is, is, is important to continue to be part of our practice. Yeah, Vika, you get the last word. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you, Vika. Vika, um, Vika is Tongan, and um, she was talking a little bit about her, her, her people uh, and the earthquake and the tsunamis that happened over the weekend, and um, that that's a wake-up call. That's kind of a moment where um, where everybody kind of stopped and said, "Okay, uh, let's get right with God." Um, and Vika, you said God is the same t uh, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And part of what you hinted at, uh, you, you said God's loving. And that is one of those characters that, uh, characteristics of God that is eternal. That won't change. That is what is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God loves us, and there will be, uh, God will be in relationship with us no matter what. That's what Noah's covenant says, no matter what. So, yeah. You guys are wonderful. You stayed five minutes longer. You all get stars for your class today. I appreciate it. If there's ever any more you want to ask or say that we don't have time for, feel free to drop me an email. Uh, we'll keep going down this path the best as we can um, in the coming weeks. So uh, join me. I'm glad you're with me today. Take care. Bye, everybody. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. FUMCSD Pastor's Bible Study Podcast is a production of First United Methodist Church of San Diego and is available anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at First Church SD and also our YouTube channel, First United Methodist Church of San Diego. This podcast was edited and produced by William Kane, Executive Producer, First United Methodist Church of San Diego. Audio mixed by William Kane. FUMCSD Pastors Bible Study is a First United Methodist Church of San Diego production. Copyright 2021.